Hi everyone and welcome to Heroes and Howlers and the Rest is History. I'm Mikey Robbins. I'm a bit of a history nerd, but my mate Paul Wilson. Hi, everybody. Paul's a proper historian, all the way from Oxford. Thanks, Mikey. Okay, folks, so here's the show. It's about the unsung heroes, the bizarre twists of fate, those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. Yeah, actually, mate, it's also about the cock ups. (laughs) Those howlers, the moments of madness, they're sometimes tragic, sometimes comical, that have made the world what it is today. G'day everyone and welcome to Extra Helpings for Season 3. That's right, we've made it a Season 3. So if you are a new listener, don't forget, check out the back catalogue because we've actually got more than 30 episodes waiting back there for you. That's right, folks. And uh, this one today, though, we're looking at Episodes 1 to 5 from Season 3. And of course, that all started off with Mikey with your Potsdam Giants. Yes, mate, a very Prussian tale. And we've had a few Prussian questions, haven't we? Particularly about the Prussian... Blue. And I've been asked, yeah, is there any historical connection with the Persian blue and the Egyptian blue or even the Russian blue? <laughs> but I think that's your cat, isn't it, Mikey? My first cat, Pussa, was a Russian blue. <laughs> there you go. But the Persian blue and Egyptian blue, yes, they were uh, part of history, as was Prussian blue. Prussian blue, in fact, was the first ever synthetic pigment uh, invented in 1706 by the Berlin painter dies bark although the story goes apparently it was an accident because he was using potash trying to make the color red (laughs) and ended up with prussian blue Um, but the whole point of prussian blue was they were trying to imitate the old famous persian blue because persian blue of course comes from lapis lazuli uh, that semi-precious stone you find in uh, afghanistan and tajikistan and the east of iran and of course is extremely expensive so the modern industrialists they were looking for a way of making a much cheaper version um, synthetically and what this painter Diesbach came up with was of course the Prussian blue which you probably know Mikey um, as the blue that we use in blueprints ah right so it's a very strong blue um, just like the Persian one and just like the Egyptian one before it although interestingly the Egyptian blue um, which dates back you know 2,000, 3,000 years, that also is a contender for being a synthetic pigment rather than a natural occurring because it's a, it's a sort of form of calcium copper silicate. And it was made by the Egyptians because they were trying to imitate the old Phoenician purple, you know, the royal purple, the imperial purple that's on all those togas uh, in, all the, in all the paintings and all, that you see of Caesar and ancient Rome and ancient Greece. And that was quite interesting in itself because the Phoenician purple, Phoenicia, of course, meaning the purple land, that was made out of the glands of sea snails, Mikey. Um, and it's the old port of Tyre, in Phoenicia was where the centre of that industry. And the special thing about the Phoenician purple, unlike all the other ancient uh, dyes, was that this purple became more intense with wear, more intense with exposure to sun. And so I suppose, yeah, you've got to think sort of squid ink to the power of 10. Mm. But unfortunately, that Egyptian blue was lost, or the formula was lost during the Dark Ages. Um, and that's why Prussian blue has become the ultimate Winner. One last thing, Mikey, just before we go, I've also been given an excellent recommendation by an old friend, Rick Stewart, a great friend of the show and great help to me over 
many years. He tells me there's actually a novel called Prussian Blue by Philip Kerr. Um, it's a thriller, crime thriller, I'm told. So I'm adding it to my reading list. Well, funny you should say that, Paul. Since we recorded that episode, my reading list has been looking into the life of Frederick the Great, who was, of course, the son of Frederick Wilhelm I, the guy who assembled the Potsdam Giants. Now, we go on to talk about how Frederick, you know, his military achievements, um, his philosophical achievements, and I mentioned his musical achievements. And so I did a bit of reading, and yes, the guy was a bit of a crack musician. And it all goes back to, remember how we were talking about when he was a kid? His dad used to get him mm-hmm. up before dawn you know, to go out on parade with his little mates. Well, one of his drill masters when he was a boy was a guy called Renzel. So not only was he a drill master, this Renzel guy was a pretty good flautist, or as we say in Newcastle, played the flute. Now, <laughs> here's the thing. Frederick loved this idea, so he got lessons from Renzel, and he was actually quite gifted as a young kid. But here's the thing. His father, you know, the guy in charge of the Potsdam Giants, he thought that the flute was too effeminate. Obviously, he'd never been to a Jethro Tull concert, and so he banned <laughs> him from playing the flute. Now, of course, once Frederick becomes king, he can actually let his flute playing come out of the closet. Now, the first thing he does is he employs another composer, a guy called Karl Heinrich Graun. Now, Graun basically becomes Frederick's... I'm going to say he's Keith Richards to Frederick's Mick Jagger. In fact, he was so obsessed with having you know, the best musos around him. So he actually gets Carl Philip Emanuel Bach, Bach's son, to come and join him at the court for after-dinner jam sessions. Now, one night, Bach's dad turns up, and Frederick is over the moon over this. And this is a classic sort of nerd shed sort of moment. He gets old Bach and he shows him a bunch of new pianos that he's bought. And he and Bach spend hours, this is old, this is Johann Sebastian, Frederick and Johann spend hours playing the piano and talking. In fact, he asks Bach to compose a piece of music for him. But unfortunately, mate, there's a sad part to the tale. His teeth fell out. So the final years of his life, he had to hang up the flute. But they say that occasionally he would join in on the harpsichord. All right, which brings us on to episode Two, um, Attila the Hun, of course, and that big question was, was he really the barbarian or did he just have a bad PR department? Mm. So, Michael, you've got a bit on the, on the barbarian side of things. Yes, I do, mate, and it's one of the stranger examples of the Roman bias against the barbarian world. I'm going to call it the Romans' war on pants. What, underpants? No, mate, they were all going commando in those days. No, trousers. And look, one of the first times this is recorded is Cicero. He's defending Alphontius, the former governor of Gaul. Now, he's up on charges of extortion, basically ripping off the local tribesmen. But as Cicero said, you know, the fact that these Gauls wear trousers was a sign of their innate aggressiveness. In fact, here's a quote. Do you think that they, with their military cloaks and their breeches, they come to us in a lowly and submissive spirit? Nothing is further from the truth. So to an educated Roman like Cicero, pants were a dead set giveaway they are up to no good. Now, later in the court of <laughs> later, sorry, later in the court of Augustus, now Ovid, the poet, well he's he's banished from the court, probably because he got a little too close to one of Augustus' nieces. But anyway, he has to flee to Romania. And he writes home to a friend that the people, even when they were not dangerous, were odious, clothed in skins and trousers, with only their faces visible. So once again it's that idea the Romans had about, you know, pants not being trustworthy. But, mate, as you know, as the empire expanded, 
there was some sort of cultural absorption you know, in between the barbarians and the Romans. So a couple of hundred years later, well, pants are sort of popular with the working class Romans, but actually to describe them properly, they're, they're more like a, a pocketless pair of cargo shorts. And this really ticks off the Roman elite. Now, do you remember that guy we were talking about in the Attila episode, Honorius, the guy with the chickens? In 397, he's so worried about pants in Rome, he actually brings in a law. Within the venerable city, no person should be allowed to appropriate to himself the use of boots or trousers. But if any man should attempt to contravene this sanction, we command that in accordance with the sentence of the illustrious prefect, the offender be stripped of all his resources and delivered into perpetual exile. Now, this isn't just like an anti-pants law. It's also a way of just making sure that barbarians don't sneak into Rome. And I have to say, Mikey, if ever there's a case of pride comes before a fall, the various sackings of Rome by these so-called barbarians has to be pretty high up on the list. Now, I'm glad you mentioned the sackings, mate. We've talked about the Huns in the episode, and you mentioned the Goths. Um, mate, what about the Visigoths and the Vandals? Are, are they completely separate, or are they working together? Well, the Goths, they arrived before the Huns, um, so they're already in Eastern Europe when Attila's forefathers arrive. Um, but they soon split into two. You get the Visigoths, they go to the west, they go to Spain, the Iberian Peninsula, and the Ostrogoths, who stick around in the sort of the heart of Europe, Czech Republic, just above the Danube, um, just to the right of the Rhine. Um, then the Vandals, who also, of course, they sacked Rome in 455, they were already in the Iberian Peninsula, Spain and Portugal. So when the Visigoths turn up, they get pushed even further west and further south, particularly into North Africa. So in the 5th century, their king, Genseric, um, he moves over to North Africa, hugs the coast, he doesn't go too far inland, um, and then tries to sort of win his way back and eventually takes over Malta and Sicily, Corsica, Sardinia, all the Balearic Islands. And from there, that's when they launch their attack on Rome in 455. But here's the thing, Paulie, that snobbery, that sense of hubris, it doesn't end with the Roman Empire, does it? Oh, not at all. I mean, yeah, we've been using the word vandal, of course, as an insult ever since. That's right, mate. And if you think about it, it's the same in other things, too. You see, I could never understand why they use the phrase Gothic architecture when they were clearly talking about cathedrals and castles built centuries after the last of the Goths were long dead and buried. Well, very true. Well, mate, I think I might have come across the answer. It comes from an, an Italian architect and writer, a guy called Giorgio Vasari. In 1550, he writes a piece describing that medieval architecture as being in a barbarous German style. And he calls it Gothic because he blames the Goths for ruining all the great Roman architecture. And then this ugly stuff got built on top of it. Even though what he's calling ugly stuff is actually some of the best architecture Europe has ever seen. The Notre Dame, Il Duomo. Precisely. And in the next episode, we looked at American inventor Josephine Cochran, the, the woman who gave us the dishwasher, plus also to a whole bunch of other wonderful things that came out of the Chicago World's Fair. That's right, Mikey. Yeah, 1893, Chicago's World's Fair. But I got a few questions about this one too, because its full name, to give it its full title, is the World's Fair... Colombian Exposition. Um, and people ask me about that. Uh, where did they get that name from? And it's actually because it was designed to be a celebration 
of all the world's achievements, obviously, but also the 400 years since Columbus set sail to the new world. Because I don't know if you remember season one, we talked about in the Columbus episode, the Americans by this stage, they're a bit sick of the English goading them that the only good things happening in America had all originally come out of Britain. So the powers that be have started to promote this sort of alternative narrative, yeah, emphasising Columbus's role rather than the founding fathers, even though, of course, he never set foot in what's now the USA. Something that's been confusing school kids ever since. <laughs> right. But they built this artificial lake in Chicago to recreate Columbus's voyage. Um, but there was only one, <laughs> one problem. The design was so complex and the opening so costly that it all got delayed. So that instead of being 1892, 400 years after Columbus sailed the ocean blue, it ended up opening in 1893 to a few red faces. But, mate, when you think about it, if you remember the episode, being wrong with your maths, that's a really good tribute to Columbus. One of the other things, too, that came out of that episode was the whole process of her trying to get a patent, of Josephine Cochran trying to get a patent. And I got some people asking about the US Patents Office, and it actually made me ask myself a few questions about the US Patents Office, which I'd never asked before. Now, 1790, George Washington sets up the first US Patents Office and he signs the first patent. Now, the rules for it were any useful art, manufacture, engine, machine or device or any improvement thereon not before known and used. Yeah, which, yeah, that pretty much sums up a patent. And guess how exciting the first patent ever signed in America was, Paul? Well, I went to Samuel Hopkins on July the 31st for his invention to help improve the making of potash and pearl ash. Elon Musk, eat your heart out. But things actually get pretty exciting during the War of 1812. Actually, this story takes place in 1814, because that's one of the really annoying things about the War of 1812. It's still going on in 1815. Or like MASH, which actually went longer than the Korean War did. Anyway, it involves a bloke called William Thornton. Now, he was in charge of the patents office at the time. Now, he's an interesting guy. He was also the architect who designed the Capitol building. Now, at the time, the patents office was actually housed in Blodgett's Hotel in Washington. The British are advancing. So he and his staff, they take out all the blueprints, all the plans, all the documents from Blodgett's Hotel, the patent office. But here's the thing. Back in those days, you didn't just submit a plan or a blueprint. You had to submit a working model. So on August 24th, from his property, just outside of town, there are fires breaking out all over Washington. So the next morning, he, he runs back into town. Apparently, he literally ran back into town. And he confronts the British major, a guy called Waters. Now, Waters and his men have got the Blodgett's Hotel surrounded. And he implores them not to burn it down. Because remember, the models are still inside. In fact, we actually have his words. He says, these models were useful to all of mankind, not to just the Americans. And that anyone who burned them would be condemned by future generations, as were the Turks who had burned down the Library of Alexander. And his speech worked. Unfortunately, though, the models, and this is a sad piece of irony, a lot of them got lost in the fires of 1836 and 1877. Unfortunately, however, some 10,000 survive, and they're still at the Smithsonian Institute. OK, folks, so on episode four, and Paul's Duke of Northumberland. Now, mate, you've been asked a few questions on this one. That's right, but there's one in particular that people keep coming back to, and that is... 
How did Northumberland's son, Robert Dudley, do so well for himself to become Earl of Leicester? Now, Robert Dudley, he's born in 1532, the son of John Dudley. And of course, his dad got the chop and his brother got the chop when Mary came to the throne in 1553. So, yeah, but hang on, Paul. Didn't you tell us that old dad recanted on his way to the chopping block so he could save his family? Well, that's right. So Robert, Henry and Ambrose, the other three brothers, they were also condemned to death, but they're released in 1554. And they actually are taken on by the English army, by Mary's army and by Mary's husband, who's Philip, who's going to be the king of Spain. And they go and fight uh, for Philip at the Battle of St. Quentin, which is the big war against France. And that takes place in Picardy, northern France. Now, Henry, unfortunately, is killed in battle. But the brothers all perform so admirably, they are immediately pardoned and rehabilitated back home. And then things get even better when Mary dies and Princess Elizabeth takes the throne because Elizabeth, she was in the tower at the same time that Robert Dudley was. Because after Wyatt's rebellion, Mary had imprisoned her. So her, Robert and Ambrose, they'd all be in the tower together in 1553-1554. With the story going that during that time, well, Robert tickled a bit of Elizabeth's fancy. So almost immediately, both brothers are back at court. They're back in the Privy Council. Ambrose becomes Earl of Warwick and Robert becomes Earl of Leicester. And that's the, uh, the figure that we know that Liz's favourite, the, the dashing man about town, Leicester's men, Shakespeare, the spectacular festivals at Kenilworth Castle... And it's actually uh, Robert who prompted Elizabeth to give that famous speech to her troops at Tilbury before the Spanish Armada. But here's the thing. If he's her favourite, what goes wrong? Well, remember Dad, John Dudley, Duke of Northumberland. Um, you know, I said he was a skilled politico, but I'm afraid you know, a lot of people think he's just a Machiavellian schemer. And more than a few people think that Robert was a chip off the old block. Because Elizabeth, she becomes queen and immediately makes him master of the horse and also a knight of the garter. And rumours start flying around court that it's more than just Elizabeth's fancy that's being tickled. But the problem is, Mikey, Robert has already got a wife, Amy Robsart, who dates back from this whirlwind affair he had in 1550. Now, as you can imagine, Queen Elizabeth doesn't really like having a rival and Robert realises there's no way he's ever going to be made the Queen's consort while he's still got a ring round his finger. And this is where the tricky bit comes in, because in 1560, Amy is said to have fallen down the stairs at the family manor and died, broken her neck. So now, of course, the path's clear uh, for Robert to remarry, but the mutterings around court, Mikey, yeah, they, they wouldn't go away. And enemies persuade Elizabeth to drop the whole idea. And of course, eventually she does. And she decides to abandon marriage for good. And unfortunately, that's really where Robert Dudley came unstuck because by the end of the 1570s, he's finally given up. He knows Elizabeth's never going to marry him. So then he takes another woman, Lettuce Knollis, as his wife. Um, but as soon as he tells Elizabeth this, she banishes Lettuce, she banishes him from court. He goes on to have a son soon after, but unfortunately he dies. And Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester, unfortunately dies too, a broken man in 1588. <laughs> 
Well, there you go, everyone. And that brings us to our final episode in the first part of this Extra Helpings, where we talked about the booze cruise, the white ship, and all of the troubles that came after it. Now, I thought, Mikey, that episode had enough stories about Williams and Henry's to last a lifetime, but it turns out we've got a couple more. Yes, and we have to go back to the original William, William the Conqueror. Because we mentioned how, you know, it wasn't just a matter of the Battle of Hastings and then the rest is history. Because, you see, after the battle, he basically hit the banquet table pretty hard. In fact, he got really fat. He got so fat that it was noted that his horses would shy away from him when he went into the stables. But there was one incident that really upset poor William. He was meeting King Philip I of France, and only Philip could get away with this. He took one look at William the Conqueror and said, "'Is your majesty pregnant?' Oh, ouch. Well, the story goes, William I was so upset about this, he decided he was going to go on a diet. He announced to the whole court that he was going to lose weight. And his method was he would eat no solid food, consume only liquids, which meant wine, and he'd lie in bed. And the stay in bed and get wasted diet actually worked. Maybe we should try that, get rid of a few of these COVID kilos. Yes, but here's the thing. He's back in France on campaign and he's still pretty fat. He's basically laying siege to the French town of Mantes. Now, he injures himself. His horse pulls up short, and he rams his big fat gut into the pummel, the, the front part of the saddle, the wooden bit. He ruptures his internal organs. On September the 9th, 1087, he dies a painful death. Now, I'd like to say the story ends there, but it doesn't, because they've got to get him back to Normandy to have the funeral. And it's a pretty hot September, so they had a half-baked attempt to embalm him, but it's pretty steamy, it's pretty sticky, and it takes ages to get his body back there. So by the time they get back to the cathedral, they've got a pretty fat, bloated corpse. Now, the funeral attendants, and this is true, are trying to shove him into the sarcophagus, and that's when William the Conqueror's body actually explodes, raining his internal organs down on all of the poor mourners. I'm going to say no one went back to the castle for drinks afterwards. Well, there you go, Mikey. And I was going to say that Philip I, the, the French king, had been the guy to burst William's balloon. But <laughs> that, that sounds like it really was burst. Now, so quickly on to last one, Henry II, who, of course, ended that episode as the founder of the Plantagenets, the new king of England. I've been asked a couple of questions about his shield and the famous three lions. We won't talk about England shirts just now, if you don't mind, Mikey, even if we have finally made it to a final. But anyway, um, early 10th century, Rollo, the first Duke of Normandy, he's responsible for the first lion, so that's known as Rollo. The second lion is called Maine, which is out after the county of Maine, which the Normans took in 1064. Now, you you probably know Maine as the state um, in the US, and that's where a lot of French fled to um, during the religious wars in Europe. Um, but other people might know Maine in France. It's where Le Mans is, where you know, the 24-hour uh, race. And it's actually the southern border of Normandy. And so when the Normans were able to take Maine, that actually meant in 1064 they felt strong enough and safe enough. You know, there was now no real danger of them being invaded or attacked from the south anymore by their traditional rivals, the Counts of Anjou. And with that, they in turn could, of course, launch their famous invasion of England in 1066. 
so that's number two, Maine. And number three, the last of the Lions, was actually Henry's idea. He put the third one on to celebrate his marriage to Eleanor of Aquitaine. And uh, listeners, if, if that rings a bell, she, of course, was in our very, very first episode um, of Series 1. She's the indefatigable mother of Richard the Lionheart. Yeah, known to me as Richard the Bedwetter. Don't get me started on that guy, mate. All right, folks, there you go. Drop us a line on all your social media using the handle at and the rest is hist. And the rest is hist. And you can find all that stuff in the show notes. Okay, and if you like the podcast, don't forget to like, subscribe and comment, you know, whichever platforms you usually use. So that's it for the first of the extra helpings for season three. Don't forget, as I said before, folks, have a look at the back catalogue. There's over 30 episodes for your listening pleasure and we'll uh, cast you all next week. (laughs) 